ideas and interests are represented in market to not just build products for ourselves and people in our community, but to spread our culture, our understanding with the world. Additionally, being a, a black or brown or underserved or underrepresented business owner, you create opportunities for people that look like you to become a role model to people coming up after you. You're listening to the Transcend Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Wilkerson, an attorney by training and an educator at heart. This podcast is all about empowering you to build a business and leave a legacy. Here's the thing. The wealth gap in America is consistently increasing. And while full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone, even a side hustle can change your financial landscape if you're intentional about using your business to build wealth. I've run my own law firm for over 10 years. And in that time, I've helped countless California businesses go from idea to six figures. On this podcast, we talk about what it truly takes to build a sustainable business and find financial freedom. Let's dive in. Hey, y'all, I am so excited for this podcast episode that is coming at you right now. I was talking with three incredible people from ICA, which is Inner City Advisors, located in uptown slash downtown Oakland. Um, and let me tell you a little bit who about who the guests are that are coming up. So Diana Tremblay is the Chief Program Officer at ICA. She's currently on the board of Naturally Bay Area, whose mission is to simulate growth of Northern California food and natural product companies. She is also a selection committee member of the Nutrition Capital Network, supporting a selection of companies that present at their twice annual investor meetings. She is an expert in program design and delivering small business support, building entrepreneurial ecosystem building. Super cool stuff from Diana. Karan Gugsa Howard is a strategic program manager at ICA. She is currently on the board of Oakland Innovators, a community of entrepreneurs, advisors, and community leaders promoting healthy dissemination of new and existing resources and technology trends to Oakland-based black and brown businesses, as well as a board member of Just Be. Karan is a community leader and connector in the entrepreneurship development ecosystem. Both Karan and Diana also hold MBAs. Willis Wilson is an impact investor and portfolio manager at ICA. Previously, he served as the investment and growth strategist at Alpine Software Group at consultant within ASG's legal tech vertical. Willis earned his bachelor's degree from UC Berkeley, where he was an active member of the UC Berkeley entrepreneurship and technology community. Both domestically and abroad, Willis has advised early stage startups on building strong businesses, uh, building strong business models, product positioning, accessing capital, and exit opportunities. Outside of his professional pursuits, Willis is passionate about spending time with family, living a balanced life, and expanding ideas. I had a great time talking with all three of our guests today, and I know you will enjoy the conversation. There were lots of gems and nuggets, a little bit of history dropped in the conversation. Definitely pay attention and then look these folks up when you get done listening. All right, have fun. All right. So welcome to Transcend the Podcast. I'm so excited to have each and every one of you here. Now, the listeners have already heard your bio, but I want them to hear a little bit more about you each individually. So um, Karan, can we start with you? What made you excited about small business and why did you decide to make a career out of helping small business owners? Great. Thanks for that. It's so interesting because I spent a lot of years of my life um, trying to go to law school um, and wanted to do innocence work because um, I have a passion for working with formerly incarcerated folks. 
Um, but in kind of doing like law screening programs and actually like seeing how cases work and looking at public defenders, I don't know if I'd want that for my life. And mm -hmm. I could spend years helping someone kind of gain their freedom or innocence, but then what's after that? You know, whereas with the business education, that's actually education that I can share with someone and they can go and make all types of money moves, you know, for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a way for me to contribute to um, to the community in a larger way, having been a, a micro entrepreneur since I was a kid. And so it just kind of comes naturally to me, but it's, it's very rewarding for me to be able to, um, you know, help someone develop skills or give someone some tools or ideate with them on their business to help them uh, to, to grow their business and scale their business. So. Awesome. I love that. Remind me to come back around to that innocence project topic because I do some work with expunging criminal records. And I really do think that entrepreneurship is a way for folks who are coming out of the system to begin to get a start. But I want to unpack that a little bit more and then maybe do a whole nother episode or series of episodes supporting our reentry community in entrepreneurship. So thank you for that. Diana, let's go with you next. Why did you, um, what made you passionate about helping business owners? You know, I, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, specifically Oakland, I saw lots of small businesses. You know, in, in the 80s, a lot of small businesses started to go away from our neighborhoods because of everything that was happening with drugs being flooded into our communities and the war on drugs. Um, and so I would walk to school and I would see, I grew up, you know, off seminary in MacArthur. I would walk to school, see businesses shuttered. Um, and I knew after I graduated, um, from Cal State Hayward, as it was known back then, now Cal State East Bay, that I wanted to work with small business, but I got my degree in English and I didn't even know how to do that. Me um, too. Hey, liberal arts. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so I ended up working for a small business and I work, I have worked in or with small businesses for most of my career. Um, and corporate America was not for me in any way, shape or form. And so I went to Mills College and got my MBA. Um, and as part of that, I started to see opportunities and I was connected to ICA, the org that we, I work with now. And as Karan said, it's, it's sharing, it's building, it's being able to share that knowledge because if it's locked in my head, it does nobody any good. So that's really what I'm passionate about is sharing of information and connecting all the little dots and numbers. Give me a spreadsheet any day and I will help you figure out your numbers. Not as good as Willis, but I will help you figure out your numbers. <laughs> I am so not that. I just rely totally on words. And I'm like, you know what? English major, law school, just words for me. Thank you very much. So I admire your ability to uh, read and analyze a spreadsheet for sure. Um, Willis, last but certainly not least, tell us your motivating factor for getting into helping small businesses. Yeah, that's a, that's a really a good question, deep question. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if actually small business is my emphasis as much as it is supporting diverse founders. Uh, my career started doing strategic acquisitions in the lower middle market, uh, which was very, you know, different, not quite exactly the same um, as the work I do now with ICA, but I'm very passionate about it. I'm very passionate about being able to support members of my community, born and bred in Oakland, you know, stay local for college and, and everything, and just being able to support these founders that look like all of us. Um, and, and really see the impact that has on the greater community uh, really uh, kind of gives me the drive that I need to, to continue this work. And that's why I do it. 
Absolutely. And, and small business is not like, you know, the colloquial definition of small does not fit actually for small business. And I don't remember, do you remember what the numbers are for what actually defines a small business? It's a lot of money. It's an employee count. And there's like this under, depending on the industry, under 50 million in rev, I think it is, um, and under a certain number of employees, but it, it varies. Yeah. Yeah. So like millions. So if y'all are thinking like, oh, I don't want to be a small business, you can go start out being a small business because that's a lot of millions. Totally, totally. So, you know, we talk about economic impact, especially with ICA, the organization is founded to help fund jo- jobs, right? That's one of the, the mottos is fund good jobs. So just popcorn style, can you all describe some of the impact that actually starting businesses in our communities, specifically for black and brown folks, like what is the impact that you see when we support entrepreneurs of color? Some of that impact we've seen are first and foremost job retention. So it's not all about creating hundreds of jobs because you don't do that if it's not doesn't make sense for the business. So job retention is really important. Um, and seeing who the companies actually employ and how they're supporting those those employees and are they are they in an environment that is caring and a good place to work because you don't want to work anywhere that's not a good place to work. Um, and you know, over time the job quality gets better. So we've seen that impact, but it does take time. You can't start out paying living wages to every single person. It's really hard. Um, you have to graduate up to that. You can't start out offering benefits. Like there's a lot of things that folks can graduate up to, but there's also a lot of free things that we have seen the impact of that. Um, we've seen the impact of, um, wealth grown in communities um, through what we do. And, you know, when I say what we do, it really is what the companies are doing and what we're supporting them to do and getting the tools co- to connect it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit more about like what ICA does in terms of supporting the business owners. And then we can probably circle back around to impact or just weave that throughout. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we actually have two amazing programs that we kind of use as kind of like that, uh, that, that starting point for a lot of companies um, to either go through our programs and transition on into investment. So one is our flagship program, which is the Accelerator, and that's for later stage companies, um, typically folks at like the 500 day revenue mark and above. Um, and then, um, so there, those companies go through a um, four month or 16 week program where they're really working high level strategically on their business and preparing for investment. Um, and so those are companies they've, they've seen traction, they have a solid customer base, and they are really looking to be paired with uh, a strategic advisor to really help them prepare for investment and pitching. Um, and then in our newest program, which is a lab accelerator, that is for earlier stage companies under the 500K revenue mark, of course. Um, and that program is only five weeks and there they um, focus kind of on the business structure of it. So they're post revenue. Um, they have some traction, but they really kind of need the fundamentals of the business and understanding um, those. And Asha, you were uh, amazing and actually no, um, helped us with our kickoff, which just, just, it just really um, positioned the program in a really amazing way. Um, and so there they talk about, um, the business structure, growth vision, impact, profitability, um, and then preparing for capital. So different from the accelerator where they're not maybe preparing to pitch, um, but they are having those conversations early about what it takes to take on capital. 
Um, and most notably about this formula, which is so amazing, is because we always hear about the funding gap with Black and Brown entrepreneurs, is that this program is directly paired to our seed equity fund, where they um, become eligible for a milestone-based um, investment tool of up to $50,000. So mm-hmm. that is, I think, the most amazing part because these are businesses who, um, an investment injection at an early stage really helps them propel, one, and also shows investors in the future that my someone someone took a chance on me. Someone mm-hmm. took a chance on me and so should you. Um, and then they will continue to have our support. Our, that cohort wraps in April, and I, I, they're so, I just feel like it's not, I don't own them in any way, but I call them like my companies and I have one-on-ones with them, you know, because we're wanting to prepare them for success and prepare them for capital. And so my conversation with them, ask us anything, let ICA be the place that you ask anything, we will tell you that no one else will. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's our programs. in a nutshell, but you're kind of stuck in it for life. So yeah, for life. <laughs> <laughs> I you love know, it, right? Because go ahead, Willis. Oh no, just saying another way that oh well, actually, you're you're talking programs. Let's talk programs. But another way we support is also using investments and using our mm-hmm. capital. Um, you know, growth fund, seed fund, the rapid response liquidity fund, uh, mm-hmm. California rebuilding fund. You know, just thinking about um, how to not just give the technical or tactical support, but also say. Here's some capital to execute on these things. We help you build the plan. We help you fund the execution of that plan. And we hope to be your partner lifelong, you know, or mm-hmm. as long as you want us, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, I think that that's also really important because there's a lot of times you can find programs for the technical side, but maybe don't have money or right. people are applying for grants, but aren't also developing the technical side. So I really appreciate that ICA has two different pathways, the lab and uh, the accelerator, and then also the incubator to really marry those two. Cause we all, you all, you hear about like, uh, you know, sports athletes, right? Getting a bunch of money and then going broke. Like the same thing could happen in your business if you don't mm-hmm. learn how to actually run the company and manage the money and do that kind of stuff. So I really appreciate that. So Willis, talk to us a little bit more about the money stuff. There's right now venture capitalists, seed funding, like I just need to make my pitch. Like I hear people say that all the time (laughs) or pretty frequently, but there are so many avenues to funding that don't just come from venture capitalists. So um, can you talk about some of those avenues? And then my follow-up question will be to that. How do you know that you're actually ready for a venture capitalist? Because not every business needs a VC. Right. R- right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a there, you know, there's a spectrum you know, of capital. You have the debt side, you have the equity side. The equity side consists of, you know, private equity, venture capital. Someone like us, we're like an impact VC or impact focus capital. Um, you have specialty capital from like strategic um, partners or it, it really it, it's a it's a spectrum um, kind of. So I guess that's, that was one part of the question. The other part was thinking about when you're when you're ready for venture capital. Uh, first thing is thinking about what you what you what the end goal of your business is. Um, traditionally, VC is is positioned best for businesses that want to go to the moon, if you will, uh, meaning you know expand to tens, hundreds, uh, billions of dollars in revenue, um, super large teams. They have a super scalable idea, um, of course. So you think about a company like Starbucks or 
tons of other companies that you wouldn't think of necessarily as being a venture backable business, but because of the scale and the way they build out the model, it makes sense to, to you know, fund them in that way and use that capital to propel the growth of that company. Um, looking at some one's individual business, I always like to advise them to start thinking about what the end goal is for them. Um, and then once they figure out what the end goal is, then identify the type of capital. Part of that includes thinking about what the use of the funds are. Um, sometimes there are short-term needs and, and people like think, oh, I should raise venture capital for this one. Actually, they should look at debt as an option for that. Um, people often don't consider as, as much as they should uh, who their partners will be. Like a company like ICA, I think brings a lot more to the table than just you know a check, um, which is, I think, very beneficial. Um, and, and most venture capital, most investors are like that in some way, shape or form. So thinking about which group of investors not only can provide that extra support, but also really align with the mission and vision of the business. You don't want to have to you know, be you know, at war with the investors in your company. Uh, so identifying those early on makes some sense. Right. Um, I don't I feel like I'm going on a little bit, but but hopefully uh, <laughs> that you guys got all the things you need. And I'm happy to double click or something. No, okay. it's great. Yeah. No, no, no. It, it's great. And I was just thinking about, so a lot of people think, well, okay, I need a VC. And I think the other line of thought is I don't want someone to take over my company. Mm-hmm. So what are some different examples of what those VC investor relationships actually can look like? You know, I always tell people this. Um, so your your relationship with your investor can be anything you can kind of dream it up to be, you know, economic controls, uh, economics, uh, uh, terms, control terms can all be adjusted um, or or, or um, I guess adjusted is the word, but you can make them what you want. So let's say, you know, you don't want to have to consult with your board or your other investors uh, when making certain types of business decisions. You can put that in the contract, right? And say, you know, I don't need to come to you guys to, to do make a hire or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that whatever you can dream up can be real, but kind of going back to the the main thing is like thinking about who your partners are from the start um, often uh, may heavily impacts like your, your experience with working with investors and you don't have to give up major control of your business. Um, usually VCs actually only take, especially in the early stage, only take a small percentage of the company. So you're not selling your company away. Um, that's different if you're looking at like private equity or some strategics who do usually take majority stakes or, or larger stakes in a company. And then Karan and Diana, how do you all help um, businesses like get ready, I suppose? So sometimes I hear a lot. I keep saying I hear a lot. I I have heard before. I will say it that way. Um, or some people think that, OK, I've got this really good idea. I need to go get some money. I've got this really good idea. I know everyone's going to love it. It's going to be big. It's going to be, you know, world changing. What do people need to do between the idea stage and either coming to ICA or, and then the next stage of that actually getting, uh, being ready to receive capital? Yeah. We work with companies that are post-revenue. So you have launched your business. You're bringing in revenue. You have figured out your product market or service market fit. And for the companies that we work with, that usually takes a year or two for people to at least figure out that first iteration of this is a good match. I have some traction. I have more demand than I have supply. Those are usually like the, the, the pivot points for us. And um, I think before coming to us or I think at any choice or any point, it's like, here's this idea I have. Is there an actual market opportunity for it though? And if there's a market opportunity for it, you don't have to be like, I'm going to take over 10% of the market. I'm going to take over 50. Can you grow? And 
do you have the prior experience or can you gain the experience to grow as it is growing? Do you have some experience in whatever industry you picked? Or do you, if you don't, have you done something like this before? And if you haven't, just like, do you have the hustle to get it done? I don't like to use the word hustle, but it, it like it, it is what it is. Um, and really think about your plan and how you want to grow. And we usually start working with people when they have a semblance of how they want to grow, what their growth vision is, and they need the roadmap to really help think it through. I don't know, Karan, do you wanna, what do you want to add? Yeah, I think I, I think I remember the question. Uh, but I, I also like to sometimes take it a step before because I've, I've been there. Great ideas, I need some money for it. And I always like to tell people, okay, if you were an investor or you were a bank, your personal own bank, and someone came to you, what would you require? You know, this is hard-earned money that, that you've made. What would you require of the company? You know, if I'm you, you just come up with an idea and no one bought it, you know, does that does that convince me that I want to either give my time or money? Um, and it's not totally a bad thing. But, but but put in a little sweat equity, put in something that shows, okay, there's some demand for it um, and there's a market for it outside of friends and family because friends and family can be great um, in the beginning stages, but you can only tap mm-hmm. them so many times. And so right. what what how is the market you know responding um, to you and to to the product in that way? So that is the way I typically like to think of it. But to Diana's point, once you come to ICA, you do need to be post revenue. So what I'm really looking at is the scalability of the product, whether you know it or I know it. Because there's some people who have just really great businesses, um, service or product based, who just they okay, I I can see it going somewhere, but just really don't know the potential. Um, they could own the supply chain or be very close to doing that. Um, their experience just opens up a lot of um, doors as it relates to their product or service. So those are the things that I'm kind of looking at in terms of us when we think about coming into the program and then hopefully transitioning into investment. That's absolutely great. And my thought during that time is, you know, a um, couple things. I, I really talk to not just the person who wants to have the billion dollar company, but also the person who is enjoying selling cupcakes, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays at the local farmer's market, because that is also creating some revenue that gives you an opportunity to invest it and put it somewhere that it'll grow over time. So even though we're, we're definitely having this conversation, you know, with a company that has money to support the growth of business. But if that's not something you want to do, I don't want you to be turned off by this conversation because we're just talking about different possibilities and, and different outlets. And I would say that nothing is too small and you know, no dream is too big either. So even if it doesn't fit into this container, like take the nuggets, let them sink in and, and use them however you want to use them in your own business. So um, do you all have some examples of what kind of businesses have come through ICA? There's been some really cool businesses. Some of my favorite restaurants have come through ICA. <laughs> I said, how far back you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how far back we can go forward, we can, we can go up. Right. You know, we're, we're celebrating our 25th year 
this year. Mm -hmm. And so in that 25 years, we have worked with some pretty well-known companies. We worked with Blue Bottle when they were out of James Freeman's garage in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. We worked with Revolution Foods their very first year. And, you know, now they were providing, trying to figure out how to provide lunch to Oakland Public School. And now they have products on shelves. Mm -hmm. Um, We've worked with uh, Red Bay. We work with Firebrand Artisan Breads. We've worked with a lot of folks. We've worked with almost 700 companies over our 25 years. Um, and a little over 40 have gone through our accelerator, which we launched in 2016. Um, most of them are food because I love food and <laughs> we really great food at the end of the year. Um, but we're diversifying now, but that's just an example of some of the ones. And like, we also like not every single company that we work with has become a household name and that's fine because businesses that service other businesses, they're not going to become household names. They're going to be known to each other and how they do work together. So, you know, some of the folks that, you know, you'll know them or you, or you don't, but they're all really great businesses. You know, I was going to say, I think I know when I first started four years ago, heavy, heavy, heavy on food, there were some businesses and then started, I'm all about diversification. And so now we're starting to see um, some bit like health and beauty is an industry, mm-hmm. particularly as it relates, I think, to brown uh, black and brown entrepreneurs that we see first mm-hmm. born in that space. And so um, e-commerce, um, and that can be in different industries as well. But um, those are spaces that I personally have a passion for because I know I know who the entrepreneurs are who sit in those industries. Mm-hmm. So, but we do have a heavy presence here, I feel, with, with, with food. Yeah. I, I mean, all the places you named, I have been to, and I love the food. So... <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And Diana, when you said, you know, that it's because you love food, I was thinking, you know, do what you know, right? <laughs> like, able to talk about what kind of business should I start? I'm like, look, start something that you are passionate about or that you know about. Because if you're trying to start something, like, I don't know anything about cars. If I go and try and open up a, you know, repair shop, like, I don't know, I could get got in a heartbeat because I just don't know, right? It's not a good, efficient use of my time. But, you know, cookie tasting, I could do that. I could do that all day. In there. (laughs) Definitely. Um, Maybe, Willis, maybe you could talk about this. Why is it so important for us as Black folks and Brown folks to be business owners? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, Something that immediately comes to mind is so that our ideas and interests are represented in market uh, to not just build products for ourselves and people in our community, but to spread our culture, our understanding with the world. Uh, additionally, being a, a black or brown or underserved um, or underrepresented business owner, you create opportunities uh, for people that look like you, you become a role model to people coming up after you. I mean, there's just so many uh, positive effects that, that come from it on the business side, on the community side. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really good work. I think about, you know, my mentors and, and all, all of them really who've done entrepreneurship at one time or another in their career and the life lessons you learn. You learn a lot about kind of how business works in, in many ways as well. And that's an essential skill set, I think, as we progress through life. Um, so for all of those reasons, I think, uh, uh, you know, black business, you know, business by diverse individuals is, is very important. 
Yeah, I think so too. I've been talking a lot more about the history of black business in America or just black folks in America. Cause I think, you know, where we get to be very short sighted. Um, but of course, post-slavery black folks had all the skills because we were the people who were working and building and doing all of this stuff. Right. And so we started out with businesses and we amassed enough wealth that we actually started participating in the political arena and had state representatives in the South. And we got to be a little bit too powerful. And then they knocked it all down under the name of Jim Crow. And we were segregated. Um, we were underfunded and we couldn't get housing loans. We, you know, banks would not literally would not insure housing loans or business loans totally. Right. And then fast forward again to subdivisions were created. Um, and you know, that was after industry sort of dried up, like in San Francisco in these, um, like shipyard areas, right? In these these factories. And so these subdivision communities were created. And so it was cheaper for white people to actually buy a house in the suburbs than it was to stay in public housing that was supported by the government for the local dock workers. So public housing was not this poverty thing before. It's only more recently been known as this poverty thing because the government pulled its funding because they incentivized, the government incentivized white folks to buy houses in the suburbs to support these contractors who had built all these tract homes but had no one to sell them to. In those deeds, even in Palo Alto, you know, we're Oakland based, all of us, but even in Palo Alto, there are still deeds today that say that you cannot sell to Negroes. Still today, oh, right? Yeah. I was. Yeah. Uh... My, you know, my whole family's from Indianapolis and um, my grandma passed and we were going through her stuff and she has a deed. She, she had two houses. She still, we still have them. Um, one said she had the whole old deed and it says you cannot sell this to undesirable people. And she had that original deed that had that in there. And there she was, an undesirable person who eventually right. was able to buy that house. Holding so the it, deed, right? And I had never seen, like, I, you know, you hear redlining, you hear about the scene, but you don't ever see it in real life. And I saw it in real life. I was like, I, I only read about this. I can't believe this was a thing. And it was still a thing. And it has a legacy that continues yeah. to perpetuate. And because you don't realize that it's actually that close to us, right? That's your grandmother, somebody you grew up with and knew very well. We we think of it, you know, it says, oh, 400 years ago, right? No, let's try like 40 years ago, <laughs> 50 years ago. And then even with like redlining, you know, the way that our schools are funded are by taxes. So, you know, property values go up. But if black folks literally could not own homes because of redlining, that really um, just aided in the decline or the acceleration of the wealth gap between black folks specifically and white folks. And then we have Black Wall Street, right? And Greenwood Greenwood, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was just the 100 year anniversary recently. And so it's coming back up again. But we, again, created a community of Black wealth where the Black business owners, doctors, lawyers, you know, police officers had our self-contained community. That got too big and too powerful. And it was destroyed again. So I don't want, I want people to know the history because we have created 
previously multiple times businesses and have run them to be successful. And then there's a challenge that comes up when we get too successful that they want to take it away. Now, there's probably going to be more challenges coming up. So I don't want anyone to be discouraged and feel like, well, what's the point of even trying? Because we're going to get knocked down again. But we should always try. We have always tried. We have these things in our history. And I think it's really important for us to know that our ancestors, even just a couple generations, did it before us. And it's important for us to keep going in that lane. So I really personally appreciate the work that you all are doing just to support, you know, black and brown businesses, because I think that's the way that it's going to change our communities. Somebody asked me a couple weeks ago on a podcast, they said, well, you're into business and business is capitalist, right? Like, like, okay. Yeah. And he was like, so how do you bridge that with your social justice background? And I thought about it for a minute. So I kind of, I want to hear, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this before, but (laughs) so surprise, Uh, but I, (laughs) so I want to hear what you all um, think about that. How does business for black folks, for brown folks, for under-resourced communities really intersect with social justice? Yeah, I don't know. I think it is a great question. And I honestly think, um, it's honestly in the way this ICA operates, like who we're choosing to prioritize uh, in terms of um, business programming, um, who we're choosing to prioritize for investment, um, who your employees need to represent in order for us to show interest. Um, where are you sourcing your employees from um, for us to show interest? Um, so I, I think that it's, it's so ingrained in our mission and actually how we work every day is just not words on a website. We actually live it. Um, that I think that that is, that's how we're, we're, we're seeing and being the intersectionality in many ways um, for a lot of our, and we can like we talk about that, or for a lot of our products, like our terms are super founder, founder forward um, and founder friendly. Um, you know, for our RRLF, our, our, our rapid response um, loan product, is zero zero percent interest. So we're wanting people to win, and so in many ways, um, we don't have um, a lot of that. You know, uh, finite print at a lot of our programming products um, that really can 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 hold people back. But. Mm-hmm. You know, Karan, you you got me all fired up. You had some great points. I like when you said, you know, who's prioritized. I'm like, that's that's a fact. Who's funded? You know, what underwriting terms and metrics are used? Um, how do you measure success? Who do you hire? Who do you partner with? I mean, there's so many ways to use your your actions in business to really send a message. You know, we saw a big thing with you know, you see how when someone gets, and I don't, I'm not necessarily, I have interesting feelings on like cancel culture, but someone does something in business, does something that is unacceptable, right? And then people who work with them say, you know, if this is where you stand, then I cannot work with your part, you partner with you for these reasons. So I think that's a good way to use business to, to express um, your, your stance socially and, and move social justice in the right direction. Yeah. And I think it doesn't have to, in both with Quran and Willis said, it doesn't have to be really big acts. You don't have to stand at the top of a building and scream at the top of your lungs. This is what we're doing. It is all about the act and what you do. Um, and social justice and capitalism can live in the same space. They don't have to be separate. 
capitalism is the way that our country works. It's the way that our money works and understanding and being able to operate in that and also hold true who we serve, how we want to serve them and how we want to get money out the door. Like we've deployed almost the same amount of money in the beginning of this year than we did in seven years. And that's because of who we're prioritizing and why we're prioritizing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A friend of mine reminded me, she's like, Asha, there's a difference between capitalism and brutal capitalism. Because I I do feel like, especially as, as black folks, you know, you start to get a little further ahead and there's this, um, Maybe sometimes it's spoken, this rule that you gotta, you can't get too big before you give back, right? And you need to pull everybody else up. And there's just interesting rhetoric around how are we supposed to do that? Is it in terms of hiring? Is it in terms of just giving money? You know, what does it mean to like go and be successful and leave your community, you know, quote unquote, leave your community? So there's a lot of pressure, I feel like, on on Black folks and probably Brown folks, you know, the general underrepresented communities to not, you know, forget where you come from and to not get too big because now you're like them. Um, But I personally think that uh, business and social justice are really tied because I just remember reading in law school and I, I should remember the case name, but I don't, but how, when the judges decided, Supreme Court decided that corporations could donate to political campaigns, right? And that's what We see the effects of that and have seen that now for the past 30 or 40 years since that case came out when you're looking at, well, how come we don't have regulations on guns? You know, gun violence affects so many people in this nation, but the NRA can make a donation or, you know, the rifle companies, I should remember what they are, can make donations to political campaigns. And then, of course, to continue to get that money, then those politicians are going to vote along a particular set of lines. So all of this stuff, to me, ties together. We did some campaigns in November about, you know, get out and vote. We've done that multiple times. But your money also has the ability to change things around you. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. That's just a thing. Right. So I think if we are looking to really have our voices heard and make those structural changes, we got to have more money to be able to influence things just the same way that things are already being influenced now. And in addition to that, on a smaller level, you know, when you start a business, like you all said it before, you get to choose who to hire. You get to choose what kind of PTO and vacation days you want to do. Do you want to have a limited number or not? You get to choose who you want to train. You become a pillar in the community. You become a role model in the community. You're actually hiring people, which is putting money into their pockets and then changing their financial future you know, for years and hopefully generations to come. So I personally believe that entrepreneurship is a quick tool, quick tool for black folks and brown folks to close this wealth gap because you don't need permission to be an entrepreneur. You need a strategy and you need some, you know, a good service or a good product, but you don't need permission. Yeah. It's so interesting you said a tool because I tell the entrepreneurs all the time, think of money as a tool because in our communities, we are afraid um, to take on debt, um, you know, for right. a, a number of reasons. Um, but use it as a tool, use it to fix something, grow something, scale something. And so the minute I think people begin that mental shift happens and you begin to think about it um, as a tool, as a growth mechanism, um, it can be really transformative for, for, for a lot of folks. Yeah. 
and the more and more I do this work, there's so much, there's, there's the technical side of like, you got to have the skills and got to have the stuff together. But then there's also that mental mindset shift. And I keep hearing more about like your money story. What's your money story? And, you know, we could all have different money stories from whether like we didn't have to think about it. So, so we don't think about it now in our businesses or we grew up never having enough of it. And so we carry that scarcity mindset forward. But I just encourage people to really just think about, you know, what we believe, check that, you know, what is true and, you know, make moves that are, that are in alignment with that. My, Maybe last question for you all, depending on how this goes in the, say, in the same vein of um, social justice. But Karan, you had mentioned earlier, you know, the Innocence Project and, and wanting to help uh, folks who were on death row or at least were incarcerated. Have you all had the opportunity to work with any entrepreneurs who um, have come out of prison or who have a criminal record? Hmm. You know, I, have we had a specific initiative? No. But we don't do the types of background checks that would say, oh, okay, this person has, we had a, a partner say, like, oh, this person has, you know, a felony that that proved them from going through the loud accelerator and then eventually could prove them from investment because mm-hmm. maybe you don't invest. We look at none of that. So yeah. um, honestly, and I know Diana, I mean, been here a lot longer than me, but yeah, we we it's we definitely probably have in our education, but is it something that we ask to see how we should approach somebody or not? Um, I don't I don't think that that we have. So, um, but Diana would probably know a little bit more than me because she's been here a lot. Yeah, yeah, as Carl said, we haven't had any specific initiatives, but we have had folks come. We just don't ask. It's not our right. business like, at that. all. It's just not our business. It, it yeah. really isn't. That, I appreciate that answer better than you telling me how many people have come through <laughs> because it's not important. And that's kind of my point, right? Like, it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur. It really doesn't matter. You know, and but another ad is, is something that, you know, we learn from the companies we work with, although we don't ask them for this kind of information, is that a lot of the companies that we supported have initiatives to hire people with barriers uh, to accessing employment. So, you know, on our end, we're just like, you know, hey, we support you. You know, your mission line, we support you. And then a lot of the companies just kind of in the same vein of being aligned with what ICA does is like, we also want to figure out how to push needle forward and support people um, and, and provide opportunities. And so that's one thing I've seen a lot. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Let's see. So if you all could leave just one little nugget of advice or encouragement for the entrepreneurs as we close out. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's um, just coming and still on a high from working with the 11 companies that we work with in the lab. Make the shit. And if you don't think that you can make it, find the programs, find the people, look for the community uh, development financial institutions like us who are really looking to help folks in the community grow their businesses. So I know it can be, it be I'm, I'm, I'm just making a shift myself right now, that all these business ideas in my mind, uh, and I need to make a shift. But it's like, <laughs> make, make the shift and find people who align with you and won't tell you the 90 reasons why it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll tell you the 30 that they'll tell you the 30 of how it could potentially be successful. So in in any way that you can find that shift or whatever it is, talking to people, um, joining programs, joining networks and communities of of other entrepreneurs of color, like 
me to do that. So in that same vein, a big thing is something I actually live by is, is betting on yourself. I feel like a lot of times, you know, we enter these spaces, you know, you may feel like, you know, imposter syndrome or whatever it may be. And I always say, you know, bet on yourself and always willing to do the hard work. Uh, and so I think that it's true in, in business, it's true in life, betting yourself to the hard work. And I'll say, um, be comfortable not knowing everything. We do not have to be perfect. We are not meant to ever be perfect. We are not ever meant to have perfect information. So just be comfortable not knowing everything and be comfortable asking for help. It's okay. Um, but like, I feel like, especially as a black woman, I feel like I have to know everything all the time. And it is exhausting, exhausting. And the moment I let go of that and just ask for help, I'm like mountains off of my shoulder. So just be comfortable not knowing everything and just ask for help. Another one is terminology. Um, mm -hmm. I have found that that will hold people back. And to Diana's point, ask. So maybe you know, I, you're, I'm uncomfortable asking, right? Because I feel like I should know everything. Um, and I actually have a permission, so I'm giving myself permission not to know everything. Yes. Um, mm. But it's the best thing in the world, I'll tell you. I should send you the permission slip I made, and like it's it's, it's amazing. But I digress. <laughs> um, but terminology, I have found that that is people allow themselves to be locked out because they just don't want to ask. They don't want to admit that they don't know the term that you use or the phrase that you use. They're a business. They're an entrepreneur now. They should know this. And to that, you're not going to know everything, and it's okay. Um, so find those safe spaces, like ICF, where you can ask. I don't ask any and all questions. There's a word that you don't know. I talked to a, a lovely gentleman on the weekend, a black entrepreneur, and I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to see we help businesses grow and scale. Transparently, he said what a scale means. And I, I sat there and I explained it to him. But just, there's some people who just would have never asked. And they're like, well, I don't know what that means. So I'm not going to reach out. You know, so I think mm, right. um, terminology sometimes can lock us out. So get abreast on as much of that as possible. And if not, find the people who you can comfortably ask to give you that information. Absolutely. The community that we keep is really important, right? The the folks that we choose to surround ourselves with to support us and achieving our dreams are really important. And one of the things, um, as a shameless plug for my own community, <laughs> that is bringing legal education and business uh, advice and financial strategy to folks is to help you get ready to get into a situation that ICA can offer. But it is truly, it's like church, like modern day church, Come as you are with all of your questions. Ask me in whatever way that you need to ask me so that you can get the information. So if you're interested in that community, that's called Transcend, the membership. And then where can they find more information about ICA? ICA.fund. ICA.fund. That is our website. Everything you need to know about us, get in contact with us is on there. Absolutely. And I will link to that in the show notes, but also go and check them out. Go through the proper channels to reach out to them. But there is plenty of information on the website. But also know that when you come to ICA, you can come as you are, but also you have to do some of your own homework first to be ready to be in their programs. But they, once you get ready, they will meet you where, the, where you are and they will take help take you to the next level. So with that, I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you all next week. 
If you want to learn more about how you can build a business and leave a legacy, check out our online community where we dive deeper into these concepts. And I literally pull back the curtain to show you how I help entrepreneurs just like you build a sustainable business that leads to financial freedom. You can find out more at the wilkersonlawoffice.com. Hey family, I am so thankful that you are here listening to Transcend the Podcast, and I just want to make sure you know the best way to stay in contact with me, and that's through joining my email newsletter. So please head on over to thewilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter and join the list. I will tell you everything over there from what my offerings are to bits and pieces of information about how to grow and scale your business to self-coaching all the way to giving you updates on what the new podcast episode is. So don't hesitate. Go do it now. Thewilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter. Thanks. Thanks.